Well, good morning. It's, it's after 9.30, so I'm going to go ahead and start. I just want to welcome you to our Sunday school time. Um, my name is Clint Humphrey. I'm going to be teaching on uh, what has been a series that Pastor Josh has uh, taken up, namely this series of looking at the history of the church up until the Reformation. Now, many of us here are, are pretty familiar with the Protestant Reformation to today, but I think if you've been like me, there's been, there's been a lot of things that we've learned as we've gone along going from even the days of the apostles in the early church and then leading up through the Middle Ages and then getting to this point, which uh, this actually will be the last the last uh, talk on this, on this uh, series in church history, what happened before the Reformation? What led up to it? What, what, was, what was going on just before? And I've titled this, The Hint of Dawn. The Hint of Dawn. John Wycliffe and Jan Hus before the Reformation. The Hint of Dawn. I'm going to ask you as we start, I'm going to ask you to turn your Bibles to Psalm 119, and I'm going to read verses 145 through 152. So Psalm 119, you know that great psalm that looks at the Word of God. I'm going to read verses 145 and following, and I want you to zero in on verse 147, but I'm going to start in verse 145. I'm going to read and And then I'm going to pray for us. Psalm 119, verse 145. With my whole heart I cry, Answer me, O Lord. I will keep your statutes. I call to you, save me, that I may observe your testimonies. I rise before dawn and cry for help. I hope in your words. My eyes are awake before the watches of the night, that I may meditate on your promise. Hear my voice according to your steadfast love. O Lord, according to your justice, give me life. They draw near who persecute me with evil purpose. They are far from your law. But you are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are true. Long have I known from your testimonies that you have founded them forevermore. Would you pray with me as we begin our time? Heavenly Father, as we look at this time in church history, I pray that you would remind us of the way that you work and that you would give us hope even in the midst of dark days. Teach us, even from these saints in the past, that we can have faith that looks beyond the present evil age. Help us, we pray. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, So in dark days, what should you do? Well, according to verse 147, in dark days you actually should rise before the dawn and cry to God for help. We should hope in God's word. And so it's an orientation towards the future, which trusts God's promises, orienting to His Word, the Word that endures. 
Now, uh, I've heard it described that, that a Christian approach to hard times is to treat hard times with the attitude of the cathedral builders. This is an illustration Carl Truman uses. If you start out to build a cathedral, well, you, you know that the work won't be finished in your lifetime. So then why would you start? Well, you start with the hope of the future, that others would carry on the work. Even though all is bleak, all might be dark, you, you look to the future. And I think as we here in Canada, in, in Alberta, in Calgary right now, we can look at how our times and our situation sometimes seems very bleak in this society. We see the days are evil. Evil is entrenched. And it's difficult to imagine how things could be better. You know, you, just, you can just think that things seem to be getting worse and worse in society. And I don't, need to, I don't need to document for you. You know all of the troubles going on in our society. It's a dark night in the West. But there have been many dark nights throughout history. And at the coldest part of the night, when the chill of the night is most biting, then, at that point, that is when you get the hint of the coming dawn. And that, that hint of dawn was seen in that late, dark night of Europe's domination by the Pope at Rome and his Catholic dominion. And this is why, then, when the Reformation came, they quoted from Paul's second letter to the Corinthians in speaking of after-darkness light, post-tenebras looks light. And that was the idea that light had dawned with the Reformation. But today, this morning, I think it's really, really helpful for us to look at two key figures who were called really the forerunners of the Reformation. So these aren't reformers, but they came before the reformers. And these forerunners, I actually think, they're even more relevant for us right now today than even the reformers themselves. Because these forerunners didn't look out and see any reasons for hope. Not in what they saw in front of them. It was so dark. And yet, they looked only at the Word of God and they found help and hope in there alone, in the Word. So that's what they did. They didn't look out in society for hope. They looked to the Word of God for hope. And I think that's what we need to do. We need to stop looking out in society for hope and look to the Word of God for hope. And that will change our perspective on our times. Well, I'm going to look at two guys then. The first is John Wycliffe. His dates are 1330 to 1380. Uh, he's known in our church because two brothers, here are the Strobers sitting right up here, two brothers, the Hindles and the Strobers, they work for Wycliffe Bible Translators. And, and if you know anything about that mission agency, you know that, that that name, Wycliffe Bible Translators, it gives us a hint 
at what John Wycliffe thought was important. Now, Wycliffe, he was a a professor. He's basically a scholar at Oxford around 100 years before Luther was in Wittenberg. And Wycliffe was a part of this reforming movement in the Roman Catholic Church. It was long before the Reformation happened. Now, Wycliffe had two main emphases, two main things that he pushed. The first was he pushed against the authority of the Pope. He pushed against the authority of the Pope. Wycliffe studied the Bible, and he found zero evidence for the authority of the Pope. And so then he wrote and spoke against the Pope's authority. Now, at that time, there was actually all of this confusion because there actually became competing popes. Uh, Instead of being at Rome, they were in Avignon, France. So that's how messed up the papacy was and the Roman Catholic Church. Sometimes, uh, and you might be one of them here or you've come from this background, but you'll find people from a Roman Catholic background and they'll say, oh yeah, well, you know, the Roman Catholic Church has always been there. It's always, always the same. Not like these Protestant churches. You don't know which denomination it is. They're all cut up, all these little ones. What they fail to recognize is the Roman Catholic Church has had all kinds of strange things and divisions and difficulties, even at one point, point having competing popes. So, that, so Wycliffe spoke against the authority of the Pope, which was a big deal. But the second main push that Wycliffe made was for the Scriptures to be translated into the language of the common people. Up till that point, the access that people had to the Bible was only in what language? Latin. And so Latin was the language of scholarship. You know, so, so if you were a learned man, you would learn Latin, and then maybe you could study the Bible. Most of the priests at that time, they, they didn't know Latin beyond just the rudiments of Latin, just the very basics, so that they could spit out the liturgy. Certainly regular people didn't know Latin, Many of them, even if they could read English, they they couldn't they 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 uh, you know they would be very rare if they could I should say. Nevertheless, the idea that you could translate the Bible into, for example, common English that was a main emphasis for Wycliffe. Now we know from Luther's life, and we know from William Tyndale's work that when you translated the the Bible at that time. The government, whether it's the, gov- the, the Holy Roman Emperor or, or uh, King Henry VIII, they didn't like that. They didn't like to have the Bible put into the common language. Certainly the Roman Catholic Church didn't like it. Because what it did was it democratized the access to the Scriptures. Instead of having this kind of elite 
that only they had this special knowledge, this academic language to be able to understand the Bible. It made it possible for regular people to read the Bible for themselves. Or for regular, more simple preachers, guys that maybe didn't know Latin, but they knew English. Well, then they could preach the Bible. And suddenly you, you had the opportunity of a whole mass of preachers, potentially, who could preach in English. But the governments didn't like that because they were worried that if people are informed, they will have a tendency to resist and revolt against the government. But Wycliffe, he was already, a hundred years before this, he was, uh, before the Reformers, he was pushing for the Bible to be translated into English. And so, as a result, he faced all the same threats from the church and from powerful, powerful politicians. Now, Wycliffe did have a patron. The, his name was John of Gaunt. And, he, and he, was, he protected Wycliffe for a season. But even it became difficult politically for him to keep protecting him as time went on. But nevertheless, Wycliffe went ahead. He, he went ahead with this project of translating the Bible. Now, Wycliffe, he didn't have access to Greek and Hebrew manuscripts. So, so he, he didn't have that. He didn't have the printing press. One of the things we kind of forget about is Luther and Tyndale, well, they had the printing press so they could actually distribute copies of the Scriptures inexpensively. So what did Wycliffe do? Well, he, he had written translations that were done from Latin into English, from the Latin Vulgate, and it was all by hand. And he would have these guys, he, he would employ all these guys, and they would, they would do this translation, and then they would make copies and copies, all handwritten copies. And so the result then, you had then these, you know, you, you think of how much work went into it, but these handwritten copies of the Bible that were being spread throughout the British Isles. But Wycliffe didn't stop with just translating. He could have just, okay, well, we get these copies out there and that's it. But Wycliffe encouraged the key thing that goes along with a translated Bible. He encouraged preaching. It's really important. Not only having the Bible, but having the Bible preached. He encouraged preaching. Not in Latin, but in English. It was, a, it was radical and revolutionary. So what Wycliffe did was, he sent out these very poor, simple men. They didn't know Latin, but they knew English. They could read at least. They could read the English translation. He sent them out to preach in English from these, what we call them, these bootleg copies of the Bible. And so then these guys are going out preaching. And these, these preachers, as they were sent out, these kind of village preachers, they became known by the derogatory term, the Lollards. And it, it's, it's spelled just like you do on, when you're texting. L-O-L. And that's what people did. They mocked them and they laughed out loud at these guys. Traveling preachers. Who are these guys? Preaching in English. They're just poor guys. 
They're not rich. They're not, they're not kind of licensed preachers. But the result was that anybody who could read English, anybody, even if you couldn't, you, you could hear the word preached in English, And the result was you started to have this new reforming faith that was developing in the British Isles. A new reforming faith that was getting closer to having the gospel be unencumbered by all of the the scaffolding that the Roman Catholic Church had added to the gospel. That was starting to be peeled away. And so there, there, then in England, in Scotland, there became these regions, these little pockets where the Lollards were really active. And the result was it laid the groundwork for the later Reformation. So, for example, one of the guys that I've done a bu- quite a bit of study on is the first martyr of the Scottish Reformation. His name was Patrick Hamilton. He was martyred in St. Andrews. And... Uh, Patrick, he, he actually, in his family, his family had had contact with the Lollards for about a hundred years. They'd had this influence. So when he, as a young man, he went to university and he started questioning what the Roman Catholic Church was teaching, he'd already had this Lollard influence. And then, as his views changed, he thought, you know, I, I need to go to the source, and this was a hundred years later. So, so then he went to Germany, and he went to Wittenberg, and he ended up doing his studies at the University of Marburg, which was the first Protestant university. He came back to Scotland after that, and very quickly the Roman Catholic authorities, they wanted to shut him down. So then he was put on trial, and then they burnt him at the stake in St. Andrews. And so that's why St. Andrews was famous, not for the golf course. Um, but anyways, so St. Andrews. But that's, that's still the influence of Wycliffe and the Lollards. That's kind of the roots of it. So, so you know, just to think, just it's a little bit the lesson here is you never know how your godly efforts will bear fruit even beyond your lifetime. Uh, for example, you know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Wycliffe might have thought that a lot of what he did, he did was in vain, you know, but, but it's not in vain in the Lord, and the fruit of it would, would last long beyond his own life. Wycliffe later on at the Council of Constance after he had died. Wycliffe wasn't martyred. He just died died of old age. I think he had a couple of strokes. But after he was dead at the Council of Constance, uh, Wycliffe was declared a heretic. And so what they did then, because he was declared a heretic, they found his grave they dug up his bones, they burnt his bones, they ground him up, and threw the powder in the river. So that's what they thought of Wycliffe after that. 
But his bones didn't matter. It was his ideas that matter. And his passion to have the word of God be spread abroad to the common people. That's what happened. So then later when you get Tyndale, Tyndale, he translates the Bible, but he doesn't do it from the Latin, which is in itself a translation. He does it from the Greek and Hebrew. And Tyndale's Bible, like if you've got an English Bible, the phraseology of the English Bible that we use, there, it's, it's, it's a very high percentage that comes from Tyndale's English. So it's, you know, we're not so far away from that connection, but Tyndale was inspired by Wycliffe. And Tyndale, of course, he said famously, his desire, he was speaking to a Roman Catholic priest, he said his desire was that the boy who plows the field will know more of the Scriptures than you do. And of course, that's what happened. And so we've got kids, they can know the Bible and know it better than a medieval Roman Catholic priest would. So that's, that's then the legacy of Wycliffe. Now, what, what actually happened, Wycliffe, Wycliffe had an impact in England, there's no doubt, and, and the Lollards. But, but Wycliffe's ideas actually took hold somewhere else even more powerfully. Wycliffe had students from the university at Oxford, and they went out to other universities in Europe. And in particular, there were students who left Oxford with Wycliffe's ideas and his writings, and they went to what we would call now the Czech Republic, to Prague and the university at Prague. Now, uh, in Prague, the teachings of Wycliffe were then translated into Czech. And, and, and that resulted in then these tensions between the German students at the university who favored the Roman Catholic status quo and then these Czech students who, following Wycliffe, they wanted to see less power in the hands of the Pope. They wanted to see more support for church councils rather than the Pope. And they wanted to have an overall higher reliance upon the Scriptures as the most important authority of all. Now these guys aren't, aren't quite to the, the clarity of the Protestant Reformation, but they're trending that way. Now, one of the people who was most influenced in Prague by Wycliffe's teaching was a guy named Jan Hus. Now, he was a priest. He, he grew up poor. Uh, he, he came from uh, what, what basically we would call Hus town. Uh, and Hus means goose. So he's from poor little goose town. Um, and, and so... He, he didn't, you know, he's poor. There was maybe one, there's very few ways to have any kind of advancement in that age. So he entered the priesthood. And so Roman Catholic priesthood, so he's, he's studying away. But while he's in Prague, he, he encounters Wycliffe's teaching. And so he's got Wycliffe's writings. He's studying these. And, and what it did as well, because he's a priest, he had opportunity then to study the Bible in Latin. He fell in love with the Bible. 
He, he just, the, the, the scriptures were riveting for him. And so the result is that Jan Hus became a preacher. He, he started preaching. He was an expositor of scripture. And he did it very uniquely because this was not, not done elsewhere. He preached in Czech. He preached in the language of the people, which in itself was a big deal. And he preached at what was called Bethlehem Chapel in Prague, which was about 3,000 people. So it was a big church, Roman Catholic church. Now, I just want to stop just for a second and point out that before the Reformation, preaching was not a high priority in the Middle Ages. It's one of the things, like, when you go through and you, you look at all the churches, you look at all that was going on, there were rare instances of guys who were preachers. Somebody like John Chrysostom. He was a preacher. He's well known. But, but it's not like, oh, any church you would go to and you would hear preaching. No, you don't hear preaching. You have the liturgy of the Mass, the Roman Catholic Mass, but there wouldn't really be any exposition, no explaining of what the Bible said. It just didn't happen. And so, you know, this, the little bits of Latin Bible that were recited, you'd have, but you'd ha- you wouldn't have preaching, and you wouldn't have it in the language of the people. And that's why the recovery of the Bible brought with it, it's, it's inevitable, it brought a recovery of the preaching of the Word of God. So Huss then, he preached and he gradually became more and more convinced of the supreme authority of the scriptures. Now the popes, they were a mess. Like I said, I talked about the rival popes or or what they were called the anti-popes in Avignon, France, as opposed to the pope claimants in Rome. I mean, it's just all really, really messy politics with these popes. On the drive-in, I was just telling my sons, there was the one pope, one guy, he, uh, he called a crusade against the rival pope. So he was raising money to get, get an army to go fight against the other pope. So that's how twisted and weird it was. And, and, and so these popes, these rival popes, like, it's not spiritual. They're just trying to fleece people at this point. So Huss, he becomes radicalized even more. He takes Wycliffe's line that the Pope doesn't have any real authority. Now, of course, the Roman Catholic Church doesn't like that. It never has. So then it, it comes after, the, the ecclesiastical authorities come after Huss. So it's too hot in Prague, so he, he gets out of town and he goes into the countryside for two years. And over that two years, he writes. He's writing books very much in the same, same stream as John Wycliffe. Eventually, the emperor demanded that Huss appear at a council to explain himself. And, and so uh, you can imagine this is... This is a little bit, it, it sounds very similar really to what happened to Luther. Uh, if you know Luther's story, or maybe you've seen the Luther movie, you know, Luther, 
he's saying all this stuff. The Pope doesn't like it. And the emperor doesn't like it. So Luther gets called in to a, a diet. Not a, it's not the diet of worms. That's what little children have. But, uh, but it's a diet, a, a, a council at the town of Worms. And he goes there. But, but the emperor guarantees Luther's safety. Now, I don't know about you, but I have, I have a hard time trusting politicians, generally. Um, Luther went to the council of this emperor, but he also had a very powerful patron, Frederick the Wise. And basically, Frederick the Wise secured Luther from being assassinated at that council. Well, it's interesting that Frederick would kind of have, he was wise, he had his antenna up. Because when Huss, a hundred years before this, when Huss was brought, summoned to a council by the emperor, Huss didn't have any powerful politician, nobleman to protect him, to look out for him. Huss Huss just went. Oh, it's like, okay, the emperor, he's giving me a chance, I can go you know, tell him all my teaching and let everybody know, and he's just going in good faith. Well, when he gets to the council, then the Roman Catholic authorities, they put him in prison, and then that's it. He shuffled around in these, in these different convents and locked up, essentially, in prison, and eventually then He's, he's charged with heresy, and then he's sentenced to be burnt at the stake. And the emperor tried to free him, but couldn't. Of course, you know, you know how it is with politicians, how hard he tried, I don't know. Um, now, just before Huss died at the stake, he said this. He said, so he's, so he's you know, he's, they're, they're going to burn him. So, but these guys, their last words were they're going to be burnt at the stake. You always want to pay attention. He says this. He says, you are now roasting a goose. His name's Huss. It means goose. You're, my, my goose is cooked, he's saying. You are roasting a goose. But God will awaken a swan whom you will not burn or roast. And as they shouted at him, he, you know, he couldn't answer all that they were shouting at him. And then he said, after 100 years, I will answer you. The swan will answer. Well, it's, it's pretty amazing. So, so Huss, Huss you know, died that day. It was July 6th, 1415. It's still a national holiday in the Czech Republic. But Huss's hope turned out to be true because it was just over 100 years later that Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the Wittenberg church door. Luther had found some of Huss's sermons. He had found them in a library. And Luther said, I could not understand for what cause they had burnt so great a man who explained the scriptures with so much gravity and skill. 
That was Luther's assessment. You see, Luther was the swan. He was the swan. And, and Luther, knowing what Huss had said when he was burnt at the stake, Luther, after that, he understood himself as the swan, the swan that the goose had prayed for. So today, even, if, if you have a Lutheran background, if you, you, you see any of the Lutheran-connected uh, artwork, you'll often see Martin Luther pictured, and then at his feet or kind of behind him, you'll see there'll be a swan there. And you're wondering, well, why, why, why is this bird in the Luther picture? But it's because he symbolized that prediction that Huss had made. Well, from, from Wycliffe to Huss to Luther to Tyndale to the Bible you have right here. You, you see, here's this, this chain that we have. But it started with Wycliffe and Huss seeing the darkness, seeing no hope in front of them, and yet... They had hope in God's Word. And the more they got into God's Word, the clearer they could see everything. Well, what lessons can we draw from this? One one of the reasons I like doing historical Sunday school is because we can draw lessons. Uh, Professional historians, they don't say, oh, there's no lessons you can draw, it's just history. No, I think we draw lessons. We learn from the past. And 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 the first lesson is this. We have to cherish the importance of the Scriptures. Now, maybe, maybe for most of you that's obvious. Oh yeah, the Bible's important. But if I was to ask you, and you'd ask me, what is the percentage of my attention span given to the Scriptures, the Holy Scriptures, given by divine revelation. The scriptures that are translated into my, my own language at the cost of men's blood. And I would have to confess, and I'm guessing you would, that the small percentage of my attention to the Bible indicates I don't think it's as important as I ought to. And nevertheless to read the Scriptures, to know the Scriptures, to hear the Scriptures preached, to encourage preachers and the preaching of the Scriptures. That is what we should cherish and esteem and focus on. The authority and inspiration and sufficiency of the Scriptures stands over against the Pope's claims, and that includes the current Pope, It stands against all the claims of all other authorities, whether the claims of the state or the claims even even of the pastor. The Word of God is supreme. We all sit under that authority, not above it. That's the first lesson, is the importance of the Scriptures. But the second one, I would say, is we see the importance of having hope in dark times. Having hope 
in dark times. Wycliffe did not see anything in front of him that would indicate there were hopeful times ahead. It's actually a little bit surprising to me that Wycliffe wasn't martyred. Probably the only reason is he had a powerful backer and he he was able to have a little bit of political protection. Huss did not. But they they knew that right in front of them, in front of their eyes, in their own, their own day, there wasn't going to be the radical change that they knew had to happen from the Word of God so that the church would be conformed to the Word, that the gospel would be preached with clarity. They, they couldn't see that for their own day. But they nevertheless worked so that that foundation would be laid for the future. Their goose might be cooked, but they hoped in the swan that would come even a century later. And and I think that's a key lesson for us today. Right now, each of us gets really worked up about what's going on in the world right now. And it doesn't really matter what you're worked up about. Because there's all different stuff that everybody's all twisted into a pretzel about. But it's all what's right in front of our eyes, what's right in front of our nose, what's going on right now. But to think, are you putting your hope in what you see right in front of you? Or is your hope in the unseen Christ? Is your hope in His unseen kingdom? Is your hope in His soon return, even though He's not seen now? Is your hope in the power of His Word to do things among people that aren't even born yet. And so the question is, having hope in the midst of the darkness, what are you building for your grandchildren? It's it's just an easy way to gauge it. What are you building for your grandchildren? Not what are you building now. Not even what you're building for your children. What are you building for your grandchildren? Or the grandchildren of others. What, what are you building now for successive generations? Well, Wycliffe and Huss, they weren't really building for their own day. They, they, they weren't, the start of the cathedral, there wasn't much there. But there was a foundation. But they knew they weren't going to complete it. And so to consider, what are you doing now to lay foundations for the future. And that then is how you have hope in the midst of the darkness. It's why you begin. It's why you make a start. And so, with that, my hope is that God will awaken some swans among us. Maybe maybe there will be preachers raised up from the children in this congregation, or from their children. Maybe in the darkness and the madness that we see all around us, there'll be a collapse of all of that, and there'll be a great awakening that comes, where this building will be too small for all the people that will be zealous to want to hear the Word of God. We don't see that now. I mean, our church is growing, very thankful, but But it's not, you know, the city of Calgary is not beating down the door to enter here. 
But it could. It could happen. And so even if our goose is cooked, we can hope for the swan tomorrow. And that's, that's my desire. Well, that's what I wanted to share. I'm going to open it up uh, to a Q&A. Uh, I don't know if I, how well I can answer questions on Wycliffe and Huss, but I'll do my best. But I just want to open it up now uh, with these two lessons regarding the Scriptures and hope, hope for tomorrow in the dark, dark times today. But questions on Wycliffe and Huss to, to begin. You have to raise your hand because I don't know if I can see really good. Yep. His name was Sigismund. Sigismund. Uh, yeah, they changed fairly frequently in the early 1300s. So yeah, um, you can double check that. But that that's what his name was with uh, with Jan Hus. I'm I'm actually surprised I know that, but that I'm just that's you know getting to the edge of limits of my understanding. Other questions? Who here has heard of John Wycliffe before? Okay, so lots of you. Who here has heard of Jan Hus before? Oh lots. Okay. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, so just to repeat, so the question is, think about the Roman Catholic Church, and, and even today, how do you relate to people in the Roman Catholic Church? Uh, is there anything we can learn maybe from these guys in terms of how to have those conversations with Roman Catholic family or friends, neighbors and such? Uh, well, I think, I think the thing that we can draw from Wycliffe and Huss in particular is just to recognize that the Roman Catholic Church has always had major movements of self-critique. So the attitude that the Roman Catholic Church is kind of pristine and always right is just not true. Uh, There have been major movements of self-critique, and this is one of them. Even the Reformers themselves, they they weren't out to start their own church. They were trying to reform the church as it was understood. But the problem was, what they recognized was that the Roman, the Church of Rome, we could call it, uh, the only sense in which it's Catholic, Catholic means universal, is that the Church at Rome claims to speak for everybody. But the problem with the Church at Rome in the medieval times and then coming up to the Reformation as argued by the Reformers, and you see it here with Wycliffe and Huss, they argued that the Church of Rome was in schism. That the Church of Rome had left the true faith. The Church of Rome had departed from 
the orthodox faith of the apostles. That's what they were claiming. So it's not, it's not as many people think, oh, the Protestants, then they, they just went and started their own church, started a new church, as if then the Protestant church started in 1517. Well, no. The reformers were saying, no, we, we actually are the heirs of the apostles. We are on the apostles' foundation, and the church of Rome has moved off of it. And that's why we can no longer be a part of it. So I think that fundamental distinction to share with your friends will clarify things. One of the things I find most, not all, most Roman Catholics don't really understand their own history very well. And often Protestants, if you, you are informed about it a little bit, you can know better. I'll, I'll mention just, I mean, this isn't related to Wycliffe and Huss, but just as a Roman Catholic resource, there's a pastor in Rome, a church planter, a Reformed Baptist pastor, Leonardo di Caricchio. And if you go to, I, I think his website is called the Reformanda Initiative. It might be reformandainitiative.org. Even if you Google it, uh, but he goes through, and, and for Protestants like ourselves, he goes through and explains what Roman Catholicism really is like. Not what you're told on TV or tell what your friends say, but what it actually really believes. And what he shows is that the Roman Catholic Church, it actually is much more like it was in the medieval times then sometimes it gets portrayed as just a variation of an evangelical church. Well, yeah, they sing praise songs, they do this, that, you know, whatever at some of the churches, right? You know, maybe speak in tongues, depends on what kind of Roman Catholic church you're a part of. So Leonardo di Caricchio, the Reformanda Initiative out of Italy. And uh, just remarkable, he's planting a church just basically outside of the Vatican. I just love that. You know, it's like, I'm not scared, we're just going to do it right here. Let's preach the gospel. And smart, godly guy. So recommend that. So that's maybe, that's maybe a start. With the Roman Catholic Church, the thing is, any Roman Catholic friends, point them, like Huss and Wycliffe, go to the Bible. Go to the Bible. You don't have to debate about all the stuff. Just start going to the Bible. Show them the gospel in the Bible. Show them the authority of Scripture in the Bible. And, and then let the Bible be its own apologist rather than you trying to, you know, untie all the knots of someone's, you know, decades-long experience in the Roman Catholic Church. Just show them the Bible. And if they get hooked into the Bible, just like Jan Hus had, he got tied into the Bible. Well, the more he got in the Bible, the clearer everything seemed. And then he, he could see the errors of the Roman Catholic Church. I'll leave it at that. If you've got more questions on that one, you can come up to me afterwards. Maybe one more question and then we'll break. Yep, go ahead. Uh, I, don't, I don't think so. Uh, the, the key, so the question is, did Wycliffe and Huss have access to the Greek? They used the Latin Vulgate, which was common, uh, Jerome, the great translator. I mean, you know, it's a remarkable feat, even the, the Latin Vulgate. Uh, but it's still a translation. And even Jerome's translation has, has problems in terms of his own access to original manuscripts. But what happened then, 
part of the development of how God paved the way for the Reformation was the rise of humanism, which was this scholarship that wanted to go back to the sources. You know, it became this theme, ad fontes, to the sources, to, to the fount. Now, that, that applied to, you know, reading Aristotle and Plato in the original Greek. But then it also applied then to finding then the Greek manuscripts of the New Testament and going and learning Greek and reading those. And so you had then a guy named Erasmus, Erasmus of Rotterdam, and he became the great humanist scholar. And what he did, he put together a Greek New Testament. And so any of these these early reformers, they all aimed to know not only Latin, but to learn Greek. And over time, then some of them even tried to learn Hebrew, but, but to learn Greek. And then they used Erasmus's New Testament as then a basis for their discoveries. Uh, now, interesting, Erasmus had critiques of the Roman Catholic Church too, but he was a lot more political in how he approached it. And although he critiqued the immorality of Roman Catholic clergy and and different practices in the Roman Catholic Church, he wasn't going to upset the, the apple cart too much. Whereas then when Luther came on the scene, Luther, by his convictions from the Word of God, he was going all the way. And so then he challenged Erasmus on this, and they had some epic battles, uh, the two great minds. So, so it's interesting just how even opportunities to have access to the Bible or access to uh, biblical manuscripts actually feeds further reformation and further teaching. So, good question. Well, I'm going to pray and we're going to adjourn. Uh, and I, my hope is that you'll just be inspired to study even this maybe often neglected period of history. But also I'm hoping that you'll all grow in some hope. Hope that's beyond the darkness, past the darkness, and not be despairing about what you see in front of you. Let's take our example, even from Wycliffe and the goose. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I ask that as we consider these things, you would help us to know what we ought to be doing in this generation to serve generations to come. That we would bear a faithful testimony now, even if it's not well received now, but that we would bear a witness that can encourage many, even long past when we are gone. We know you're able to do that because you are eternal. And so we trust in your eternal faithfulness that you can render even our works, works like Wycliffe's and Huss's, you can render them fruitful even in ways that we could never imagine. So give us this hopeful encouragement, we pray. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you've got...